Welcome to Vulnerable Resilience, an audio zine from project-based media company DIY Dancer and mental health nonprofit, Okay, Let's Unpack This. I'm your co-host, Courtney Henry. And I'm Leo Zielinska, founder of Okay, Let's Unpack This, a dancer and mental health advocate based in Brooklyn, New York. Zoom out, zoom out. Courtney and I have teamed up with DIY Dancer to edit and co-host this audio zine collectively and collaboratively, bringing into the spotlight a collection of conversations, essays, and self-care moments all focused on dancer mental health. I'm super grateful for all the contributors, and I'm humbled to be a part of this project with you, Courtney. Thanks, Leo. So we're really excited to share episode two of this series with you. In this episode, we will begin by listening to Caitlin Burns, a young choreographer and student who journaled her COVID experience from its early stages. And this personally hits home because I also had COVID quite recently. Afterwards is a tantalizing dreamscape from longtime DIY dancer contributor Alejandra Ioni and a provocative discussion about trauma and healing in dance with Whistle While You Work, a platform that promotes conversations around harassment, discrimination, and violence towards women and marginalized groups, particularly while at work in the arts. This talk is going to be featuring writer and dramaturg Robin Dotti, an international dance artist, Francis Chiaverini, Julia Eichten, and Vanya Vaz. Each episode, we'll be looking at mental health through a unique lens of our dance artist contributors. Some segments will be preceded by content warnings, just to ensure everyone can listen safely. Mental health resources will also be listed at the end of each episode, as well as in the show notes at DIYDancer.com. Welcome back to Vulnerable Resilience. Just a quick warning to our audience, this piece discusses COVID-19 and uses strong imagery to discuss its symptoms. If those might be challenging topics for you, please consider skipping this section. My name is Caitlin Burns, and I'm a performer, choreographer, writer, and dance teacher based in New York. I'm also an undergraduate student at Muhlenberg College in Allentown, Pennsylvania, pursuing studies in dance choreography and education. As an artist, one of the primary intentions of my work is to embody the tragedies of the lived experience and to not only ignite conversations of how these experiences imprint our bodies, but to also uncover the beauty in the most unlikely things by creating them into movement and making them into art. During the early stages of the pandemic in March of 2020, I found myself facing a world of unknowns after falling ill to the coronavirus at a time where even the medical field had not yet grappled with this idea of the virus doing such damage to the body of a young, active college student. 
I found myself struggling with the fact that there weren't an abundance of resources available to me, and the medical professionals that I was supposed to trust told me that I was wrong about my condition. Part of what got me through this burden was art, both receiving and creating it. I didn't know it at the time, but even the journal that I came to every night to share the state of my condition became a source of inspiration for my work and all the things that I had yet to create. In this audio piece, I'm revisiting this journal, which captures the raw impressions of how COVID-19 revealed various discourses surrounding my identity. These conversations were ones that ultimately contributed to some of my choreographic research when revisiting some of my symptoms. These pages from my personal journal serve as a physical recollection demonstrating the virus's progression within my body and how it continues to even affect me today. It's August 3rd, 2020. As months continue to slip away, my body reminds me of a silent battle that continues to rage through my bones. A stray heartbeat now rings through my limbs, knocking on my chest, never allowing me to forget the damage that's been done. Its extra sound reverberates against my body's once steady frame. Moments move like gradual pieces melting into one another, as if every day becomes another step towards regaining ownership of my body's functions. Never again will I take for granted the beauty that my dancing body possesses, as I've learned just how easy it is for this vessel to be desensitized to its own lived experiences. I'm fighting the barriers that the virus left for me, scouring to break through the walls that lay between me and the dancer that I was. It's September 24th, 2020, and I'm still reminded of how the vessel for my art had been marked by the unforgiving nature of COVID-19. It first started with the heat, the life evaporating from within my body, becoming part of the air that I had struggled to breathe. With every drop of life that left my skin, my body felt bitter and my limbs felt like cold pieces of stone. My hands, equally as cold and dripping with sweat, grabbed a hold of the different parts of my body as if somehow squeezing my skin would make me feel more alive. The sheets that I laid in, the blankets that I drew close to my chest, scratched my skin, burning me as if the sun had scorched my skin. It felt as if the bones of my shoulders had been separated from their sockets, and hanging by threads, their pain inflamed my muscles. It was as if they were moving, growing, pushing my skin to its limits, except it was only a feeling that did not match what appeared on the outside. I was too young, they said, a paranoid young woman who had wasted a doctor's time. Being in quarantine, I was isolated, but having the coronavirus, I was displaced. Not until November did the world start to accept the idea of a chronic COVID patient and its inclusion of bodies that are defined by youth and sustained health. Through this, the world revealed its scrutiny, as my body was treated as a spectacle for those who were dangerously fascinated with what it must feel like to have the virus ravage the human body.
This is Courtney Henry, and I just wanted to introduce our next short piece by Alejandra Iannone. You know, I love this initial pitch because it really touches on how we can find inspiration from things outside of dance to fuel our art. It can be as simple and as close to home as our very own dreams. Alejandra refers to her dream work practice as, and I love this, night fishing, where she catches bits and pieces of her deepest self, fears, desires, in a net that takes shape as a free-flowing journal. The best part is her practice includes rewriting her story. In life, in dance, there are so many circumstances that we simply accept as just the way things are. But thoughtful dream work shows us the power of the pen and authoring our own narrative. So enjoy this sticky, sensual audio experience. Hi, my name is Alejandra Yanone. I'm based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I guess I consider myself an interdisciplinary artist. I'm a dancer, I'm a teacher, and I'm a writer. I produce immersive theater, and I'm interested in mashups, making them, writing about them, especially dance mashups. In the spring of 2020, I got an email about online courses on dreaming and the arts. The email was from Sheila Asato, a book artist and certified dream worker here in the Twin Cities. There I was, sitting in my bedroom, feeling like my well was empty. I felt numb. And so I joined the class in an effort to reconnect with my creative self. I've taken several classes with Sheila since then, and I'm still learning what dream work is exactly. Right now, I think it comes down to noticing the dreams I have and acknowledging that they're part of my lived experience. Dreams are, as Sheila puts it, our most emotional state. These days, I keep a small spiral notebook and pen next to my bed at the point where I'm right between sleep and waking, where I realize I'm dreaming. I pick up my dream journal and pen and record everything I can about the dream experience I'm having. I try to keep my eyes closed and not get stuck on understanding. I write or draw what I see or feel or notice. Sometimes my dream journals are very illegible. I'm getting better at writing in the dark and with eyes closed. In the morning, I rewrite it for legibility. I write in the present tense. That's a technique my teacher suggested. I note triggers, associations, and somatic cues. I write about what I'd like to change in my dream. And then, and this is my favorite part, I revise it with those changes and find a way to honor my revision. Dream work is an interpretation. Like any practice, there are a variety of entry points. The basic idea I'm working with is record my dreams, go night fishing, and then acknowledge them during my waking life. I'd like to share with you one of the dreams I managed to catch and my process, how I worked through it. This dream took place on November 22nd, 2020. If you feel comfortable, close your eyes while listening to savor the imagery and gently release from laws of reason. I'm seeing two uncovered jars of honey. The honey is gold and yellow. It is thick and liquid I notice it fills the jars. 
They're glass jars and one is slightly larger than the other. The jars are on a table a bit ahead of me. I see light in the honey. It's thick, round and sweet. I want to touch the honey. I want to taste the honey. The honey is attached. It's like a bubble or a balloon. It's gel-like. It's attached to itself. It's circular and voluminous. It might be poisonous. The honey was there when I got here. It's filling both jars, but not overflowing them. It might be my honey. The honey came from bees. I like looking at the honey. The honey looks squishy to me and I enjoy that. I'm not worried about the honey. I notice the honey doesn't fill the jars. I don't think the jars look empty though. I'm not eating the honey and I'm staying apart from it. It's not a problem that the honey and I are apart. I'm not sure this is my honey. It might be. It looks really good. Is it too much? I see a lot of honey there. I love the way honey tastes. I'm not eating this honey right now. I could eat this honey. I might eat this honey. So why this dream now? I'm missing things I savor. I'm avoiding situations that are sweet, but also sticky. I have opportunities available, not over the brim, but enough to comfortably fill my time. And I'm examining them, considering them. I'm seeing light and flickers of hope. When I describe the honey, is there a part of myself I'm describing? Well, I'm a natural sweetener. I clean. I'm sticky and slow moving sometimes. I'm split between containers. I come from creatures that have a stinger and I have a warm golden quality. What would I change about my dream? I'd like to smell, taste, and touch the honey. I'd like to make sure nothing got in the honey, like a bug. I'd like the jars to be full. I'd like the honey to be at my eye level. I'd like a spoon to taste the honey with, and I'd like to have someone there with me. Vulnerable Resilience was partially sponsored by OK Let's Unpack This, a nonprofit dedicated to destigmatizing the conversations around mental health, created in part through Gibney Company's Advocacy Fellowship Program. For more information about the free resources provided, such as community support groups, free individual one on one therapy, and to join the conversation on dancer mental health, visit okokok.org or find us on Instagram at okletsunpackthis. A special shout out to our sponsor, M Seam Apparel, for supporting the first person stories of dancers in every issue of our magazine. Their handmade dancewear can be found on Etsy and on Instagram at M-S-E-A-M-A-P-P-A-R-E-L.
Before we move on to this last piece, I'd like to warn our audience that this next conversation does touch on topics around trauma and dance training. If those are challenging topics for you, please consider skipping this section. Hey, 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 everyone. I'm Robin Doty here with Vanya Dutelvash, Julia Eichten, and Francis Shiverini. Um, we're going to spend some time talking about how and where healing can come in through dance practices. Um, a little background about how this idea came to be. So Francis and I co-founded our platform, Whistle While You Work, which holds open public discussions and makes resources about sexual harassment, discrimination, and abuse of power in dance. In 2018, we branched out when Frances premiered her solo work, Open Carry, Concealed Carry, and then again in 2019 when Frances worked with Julia on It's My House and I Live Here. It's My House is part dance, part installation, and 100% about Frances and Julia working through their experiences of difficult dance work and life experiences and really just centers how dancers and women can, after some pretty hard life experiences, feel sovereignty, pleasure, and creation. So today is a little bit about healing, a little bit about the ups and downs of using uh, lived experience and identity when working as a dancer or a choreographer, and a little bit about what Vanya, Julia, and Francis think about and how, um, healing can be in dance. So before we start with that, I'd like to let these three totally amazing people um, introduce a little bit about themselves. So we'll start with Vanya, go to Julia, and then we'll round it out with Frances. Hello. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I'm very happy that we can have this conversation and hopefully the repercussions of this will be healing. <laughs> for us and beyond <clears throat> beyond our little circle here. I was born in Portugal. I started ballet training at the age of five and I've never stopped. I live uniquely from it. I'm part of circles where that's odd, but I'm also part of other circles where I might have to defend my achievements as they might be considered low in the hierarchy of dance, which questions the perspective one has. I have an heterogeneous career going from ballet to go-go dancing, to be a dancer in a review theater, to join the 60-year-old contemporary repertoire company that is a, still a reference of format and form and formality as much as classification of status, to another contemporary uh, repertoire company that was funded by a single billionaire <laughs> to be part of a so-called number one show in New York City, an off-Broadway show, eventually to do conceptual European performance. And most recently, I've um, been part of, uh, I've co-created a solo in an apparent collaboration and co-authorship that led to a nomination for being the best dance performance of 2020 in Portugal. I am now working on two new creations. One is a duet in co-creation aimed to be premiered this year, 2021. We will see. <laughs> 
and another piece on my own for 2022. This for me kind of sums a bit of my identity as a dancer. Um, about healing in dance, I think that time heals um, how or in which way it may occur. It might have to do with how our brain functions and responds. If it likes to be tricked, I don't like being tricked. I like realness. For me, healing is the will to get over something and I am yet to be sure if I fancy that idea. I don't regret things. Instead of healing, I prefer to understand things and experiences. So it's probably just a choice of words, but healing makes me think that it's something to erase an experience and I prefer to understand it and then see what comes next. And yeah, and this pandemic is uh, giving a lot to think about. I've been in many stages of that analysis and reflection, even regarding my answer to restrictions, national and world restrictions. I found myself in many different spectrums of it, against it, for it, questioning it, uh, scared of it. And uh, recently I've had COVID in my family um, and it became very real and, and scary in a way that I could not have felt before. I'm not doing any dance online classes, not giving, not doing them. I had an injury a year ago in the beginning of the um, lockdowns in Europe in March. And I, I, I became more injured than what I was because I was not leaving the apartment so that I was also prevented from actually doing more activities at home. So I actually started doing Feldenkrais, which is a technique that works on the nervous system in a minimal way. Uh, so just the thought of moving, it's supposed to make your body be, believe it's moving equally with equal effort as when you are actually moving visibly. And that for me was super, super, super important. I don't have big resolutions because I never really believed in resolutions, like New Year's Eve resolutions, it never really made sense to me because again, I guess going back to the tricking of the brain, I think I'm too aware of, of, of that game that is like, who am I fooling? <laughs> I am comfortable with the idea of being in the present, that's what makes more sense to me. So there's something about the pandemic that matches that. <laughs> so there's some comfort in knowing that now everyone is supposedly, but in planning and all of that, we are all trying to keep on making plans for the future, but we all know that it's a bit of a, it's just a big hypothesis. Um, and I really appreciate the people that I depend on to do work are on that mission on thinking about the future, because for me, it's a bit absurd, but I am glad someone is doing, because if eventually that future can hold, then I will have projects and, and, and future things that will happen and it's, it's a bit of a, a relief. And that makes me think immediately about my relationship to authority. And I would now stay here because I think we can go further with this. Yeah, we'll get to that for sure. We like to talk about authority. So Julia? I am Julia Eichten. I grew up dancing in Minnesota in a highly competitive, um, very fierce dance studio. Um, and from there received education at Juilliard and had a very brief uh, moment of 
freelance at the beginning of my career. And I danced with uh, Benjamin Milpier's LA Dance Project for five years, which is where um, Francis and I officially worked together for the first time, maybe with Shannon Gillen before that springboard. But um, first time being in a professional setting together, um, which was quick, but, um, you know, immediately I had <laughs> many things to ask her questions about um, knowing how uh, much time and ownership she had over her own career. I really admired this um, about her and had kind of fawned after her for a long time. So it was such a treat to be in the same room. Um, oh, and I'm getting emotional. And that was definitely like <laughs> a seed of our relationship and talking about uh, different abuses, different, um, different situations of dance um, and kind of what you enter as a, as a young naive dancer, not kind of knowing the scope of what you're entering into. Um, gosh, I'm losing myself here. Uh, post Alley Dance Project, I re-entered freelance world and Francis and I throughout that time continued having many conversations. We'll get more into that later. I've worked as a choreographer, director, producer and teacher um, throughout that time. Taking on many, many roles is where I feel most comfortable. And it took me a while to learn that, um, that I like to be in a room where I'm not just asked to be a dancer or I'm not just asked to be a choreographer, but kind of accepting these multitude of interests that I have and how to take ownership of them. And this uh, was a big help, helped along through um, American Modern Opera Company, which is where I started producing and directing a bit more um, with the help of the company's artists, as well as uh, Zach Winokur, which is something I'm still a part of today. Um, through this pandemic, even a small organization is surviving, which is super exciting. Frances and I had our, had our premiere with Whistle um, in Frankfurt in, October of 2019, which feels both super far away and um, still so fresh as I, I don't believe that um, in the healing of things through dance, we can accomplish that in one performance. I think that was a big lesson for us is that the healing is something that is a continuous practice. And I think that has always been my practice of dance. And I didn't really know that. Throughout this pandemic, I've relocated to Vermont um, on a little farm. We have some goats, we have bunnies, we have a plethora of chickens. Um, and throughout the summer, I actually took my first ever break from dance um, and took on physicality through labor and was farming and growing vegetables, getting my hand in dirt. And that really helped me stay alive, I think, during that period to just witness growth and uh, the fruiting of something so simple as seeing an eggplant drop out of its um, stem. It's like something that really kept me going. Um, and now I teach online very sporadically, um, but I'm committing myself to like once a month on Zoom uh, for this class I've 
been developing called Groove Out, uh, as well as working on a few different digital works that are in process. And I've also started making music and um, exploring a little bit of visual art through the lens of nature as a stage, uh, because we can't have stages right now. So what can be a stage or a, a place that I meet myself, um, which nature has served. Um, and lastly, you know, there's a solo work I'm slowly in development stages of that I'm applying for residence for, um, for these ideas to be fulfilled. Nice. Thank you so much. And Francis, what about you? Hey, uh, this is Francis coming to you from Zurich, Switzerland. Um, I just want to thank Julia and Banya for those really warm introductions and nods this way. And I just want to say that um, no offense to generations before mine, but I've personally gotten all my inspiration to keep going from generations after me, um, from working with Julia briefly then in Los Angeles and hanging out with Vanya. And um, did we ever work together, Vanya? Yes, we do. We work together. <laughs> I can't believe I forgot. Yes, we are currently still working together. Um, we work together with Trajal Harrell. Uh, and uh, with Robin, um, Robin opened up my eyes to the power of activism. Um, and she inspired the two of us getting whistle while you worked together and moving forward and doing all the things that we do now. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. I have similar stories to you both before me. I went to Juilliard. Before that, I had a very strict classical training um, where I think a lot of the trauma happened. <laughs> <laughs> went to Juilliard school where some more trauma happened. And then I went to NDT where like the most trauma happened. And then I continued through my career working freelance, um, uh, mostly in New York and um, and then again in Germany. And then even more trauma happens. Um, so uh, that's, but just for the sake of this conversation, that's a big part of my dancer identity is like how to deal with this, these experiences of trauma. Now I'm getting into my thoughts on on healing in dance. Um, and I, I guess, uh, I don't know, I don't know how to do it. Um, I guess finding confidence in my unique voice and making my own work and being my, being an author of my own work and being proud of that is, is perhaps one way of healing. Although I have found up until now <laughs> that, uh, it's also been a little bit traumatizing for me to do that. Like, it's so scary to just be like, hey, everyone, most of the people here at this gallery that I've never met before, I'm going to tell you a very intimate story about myself and my experience. And then I'm going to use my body in front of you to tell you even more in an abstract way. Robin said earlier that like what's meant to be healing can sometimes feel traumatizing um, or abusive even. Um, but I'm going to give a little um, anecdote. Uh, to put this in, into a picture of something that just happened a couple of days ago. So I was asked to uh, choreograph um, for a, a music concert. Um, uh, so I was on the phone with the composer, um, this woman, and she had sent me all, all like a bunch of little tracks before to be like, oh, this is, this is what the ultimate composition will be made of. It's all these short little tracks. And one of them was a piano, um, it was modern music on a piano. And I could not even listen to it. Like I listened to like the first, beat and I was just like nope turned it off and she had given me like carte blanche to be like tell me what you hate because we have freedom to like not use all these tracks so like I'm making a new composition out of these old compositions so I took that and I was like well I'm going to tell her she asked so 
her on the phone and I was like, I just need you to know that like, I don't know if it's because of my ballet training, my ballet upbringing of having to train every single day to like something like very beautiful to, to like a piano. And early in my career, it was um, piano uh, ballet, you know, exercises on a record. And we listened to the same record every day like over and over and over again in one class. So like you knew those, you knew those tracks. Um, and then, you know, then as I started studying in other places, then, then we got live accompaniment, which is like such an amazing, generous joy to get to, to train with, with a live accompaniment on piano. And then you get to have this relationship with, with the accompanist, but whatever. Um, so I just told her, I said, look, just so you know, like the piano, it like triggers me like crazy. Like I couldn't even listen to it. Um, and I think that that's just has to do with, with some trauma that I experienced, um, in ballet training and, um, and she like froze, like she stopped talking and she was like, well, my entire catalog <laughs> of compositions. And she's like a big deal. She's, she's not just, she's like real deal, major global, globally recognized composer. And she was like, my entire catalog is based on the piano. I write everything on the piano. And, uh, and this, and then she went on and on. And then my grandmother and this this meaning of piano in my life and my history and my family. So then I immediately felt like, oh, I just offended the shit out of this lady. Um, and she was like, well, so how do you view us as using it? She was like, I can't take the piano out. Like the, I actually want to have the piano in the middle of the stage. And I want all this choreography to be with it, like moving it. And, um, and, and she was like, so how do you view this? Like, can you go on? And I was just like, yeah, I see it as an opportunity. This is an opportunity for me to heal from my trauma, from ballet training. Um, and I guess that's true. I guess I am trying to approach that that commission as, as that, a chance to heal. Um, I don't know if that's gonna happen or if it's just gonna make me feel worse. Um, and we will find out. Uh, but another thing, I think uh, laughter is a really good tool to use for, for healing. Um, and examination, like I think Vani said something about like really trying to understand, I think is really good. And then the word of redemption kind of came up in my mind. And I was like, well, I'm not really into like karmic retribution. Like I don't think people who wronged me or who were complicit in, in abusive practices that, that I experienced, I don't think they should be punished. Like uh, I don't think like they should experience the same shitty thing I experienced, but I guess I'm more interested in like, uh, redemption in seeing like future generations like thrive in a way that I couldn't. So I guess that's why I'm so interested in doing the work with Whistle is because that's my way of healing and kind of hopefully paving a way for future generations to experience less trauma. As the, the pandemic goes, I, I'm living in Switzerland and I think I have a really, really privileged experience um, with the pandemic, I have a lot of freedoms. I'm very, very lucky. And also I was so lucky to give birth in the middle of the pandemic. And so I've kind of been occupied with learning how to be a mother and learning how to uh, care for this other being like during the pandemic. So I've been pretty occupied. I feel good. Thank you so much for that, everyone, all of you. And again, I just want to say like, it is such a joy to have like specifically the three of us together because I don't think we mentioned it. I had worked a little bit with Julia and Francis on It's My House. I had an amazing time with Vanya when Francis and I asked her to join us on a residency to help us make activities and ideas 
for um, like workshops. And so we all have like a pretty good, I think, connection with each other. And I think we've had so many of these conversations over the years. I almost want to start with <laughs> what do we have to heal from? And I feel like that's something that's really interesting because what I was hearing maybe from some of these situations is that there are certain practices or trainings that have actually caused the trauma that we have to heal from. So it's not even just like what or how do we heal, but like what are we healing? I guess my ballet training, I grew up in the south side of the capital, which has a social meaning to it, which is where the uh, immigrants, um, uh, gypsy people live. So it's a bit of the working class that needs to travel to Lisbon to work. So it's it's like the dormitory, uh, but it's also where communism was a bit, oops, sorry, US Americans, but it's where communism was more uh, prominent and it was very, it was very sociably uh, proactive. So I did ballet training there and uh, I started in a gym and then we moved to another gym. So it was always like dancing in gyms. We always had like the machines of people working out and we were doing our ballet training there and we were training for a Royal Academy of Dance. So we would have a, a woman coming to, to see the class we've been working on and learn that we knew it by heart. It would be in a closed room without our teacher, just us dancers, students, with this examinator in front of us, they would, we would have to introduce ourselves, say, good morning, Mrs. whatever. My name is Vanya. We would bow and we would go to the bar, which is where we would start the class. And one by one, we'd do this. And then the, the class will start with the music on play. And I would stop eating the weeks before because I was so nervous. And I started this when, so I started ballet when I was five. At six, I was already doing one of these exams. And then uh, eventually I would do the exam and then I would have a very good grade. So it made me continue because supposedly, you know, that meant that I had talent uh, and it was worth investing in. So that is a traumatic experience. Then another concept comes into mind, which is what is, you know, you have to qualify it, resolving and, and dealing with it and facing it and, and, and overcoming it. That does, I think it's one of the things that makes me be resilient in life, which is you go through something and then you, you don't say no to it, you don't give up on it, you face it, you deal with it, and then it does give you something to move on and to go further and to eventually achieve this mean word. It's definitely a, a conflict in my mind, in my body, in my spirit, in my soul, which is this traumatic training that took so much from me in the sense of um, agency. And at the same time, because it was so strict, it gave me there's opportunity to to resolve it, to to find ways to deal with it and to survive and to actually take care of myself and somehow be like, I'm going to be so good at this that I'll master it and I'll own it. So if I was to teach ballet these days, I wouldn't, <laughs> but I would like to rethink the whole teaching of ballet. But I do at the same time have serious questions about how pressure can make you do things and pressure could be a deadline for you to do something and do you work all the way through until the deadline or do you work the day before the deadline and the result you only know that version of the result you wouldn't know what would have happened if you have done it differently so we only have one life to see the results of a, pr a process and th for this question I don't have an answer so I I only feel that ballet training needs to be changed if ballet needs to continue 
I thought it was great what you said about dance training and how it can also like inflict trauma and just have it be something that you have to heal from. And so I'm just kind of curious how much more of a conversation there is about dance training um, in terms of just like what that what that does to dancers in good ways and in bad ways. This idea of what is good, what is best, what is the format, what is the, the way we should teach, educate, um, give place uh, and voice. Uh, so the dance factor and the discipline and the imposition of this is the only way you can do something, this pressure or, or the way you say this is not good enough uh, and in a way saying you can do better, but it's also like this is just not good enough. And you're gonna to have to show more and you're gonna to have to sweat harder and you're gonna probably have to bleed, which is literal in ballet. Um, it makes me wonder what would be the opposite and which results would come out of it. Because for certain personalities, if you don't have this kind of prove me factor, you won't do well. My question is where does this format of um, some sort of a dialogue comes? Is, it, is this really a personality? Is this a, a way you, you perform better? Or is it further uh, be, uh, before that you are uh, educated or you have some reality around you that makes you believe that this is a way you can perform. So how far can we go to change something in order for it to actually be better and to bring the best out of each person and make us happy and healthy and proactive and uh, not self-centered, but community uh, aware, collectively aware. I've witnessed um, people have come out of the company who were there with Merce, like someone like um, Silas. I've never seen anyone do Cunningham like him before. Never seen anybody do um, Cunningham like Banu. You know, I think there was room for interpretation. It was just a very fixed aesthetic. But I think for me, the bigger question is like, what if we decentralize what the standard is, which is ballet? And I think that can be a starting point, which is gently starting to happen at the institutional yes. and yes. educational level but it's super slow and it sets the thing that I've been thinking or was thinking about yesterday um just from competition upbringing and that like zone of my life which was 14 years I have a lot of like blacked out memories that I maybe can't tap into yet emotionally or have needed to delete them to continue. Um, but something that keeps coming up is comparison and this kind of using jealousy as a tool to get um, those excellent things out of you. And so I always bring to question like what is successful and what does that mean? And can we actually change what, can we just change that word and eliminate it? Cause I think it is so toxic some of the things that I feel like I picked up on from you all is definitely what is discipline in dance training? Also, um, what are the tools that um, instructors or choreographers use to create discipline or even just to create the standard in their own work? And, you know, we heard one of how is jealousy used? How is comparison used as a tool in training or in rehearsal? Um, to get people's work to be better and better for the stage. 
just from the conversations that Francis and I have had with dancers, that really doesn't necessarily mean that the dancers themselves are actually benefited by that, but the work on stage maybe is. That's something that we think is really interesting is how would it look to have a more like dancer centric form of training? What would it be like if every individual dancer was centered? I think it definitely alludes to um, where some of the healing in dance has to come from, maybe relationships to discipline, relationships to comparison, relationships to what it means to be successful, um, and also what it means to be successful in the different dance regions. And maybe a good place to kind of go into um, talking about this work that uh, Julia and Francis did in 2019, we talked about it a little bit, It's My House and I Live Here, which is, of course, a Diana Ross song, um, but also just a really great statement about oneself in the world and having the sense of ownership and authority. And I would just be a little bit curious, um, you know, jumping from this conversation about um, external authority from training and choreographers, where did that come started out as like, oh, let's do a duet. Let's make a work together. And then (laughs) I don't know at what point through the process, I was just like, I can't, I can't perform in this. I can't dance. I don't want to dance. I want you to dance. And I want to shift um, our roles. I want to change our roles and I want to direct it. I feel like in a way I disappointed my collaborator, Julia. um, And uh, I feel terrible about that. And I also felt I could see in myself that I was taking on characteristics of uh, choreographers and artistic directors of my past that I felt were very exploitative and problematic. Um, And I felt that I was being easily drawn to those uh, behaviors. And uh, I didn't like that about myself. And so I feel like that's a big takeaway that I have from It's My House. I mean, I'm so, thankful that it happened and I'm like couldn't have had a better team of people Robin was the dramaturg and she brought all these ideas of seeking pleasure and um all of which would have never come if Robin wasn't there and it was so key to the work um in the end and in the process but the question that I had in the end is like is my healing practice at the expense of other people and if it is then I don't want it I have to find a different one this isn't working I I was able to tell stories of my own abuse or like work through my own abuse in ways without actually physically performing in it. Um, And that we had all these objects that like, I was like, how do we tell these stories without like straight up telling these stories? Um, Like, you know, something that happened to me where I've like, I have like a huge beef with the American healthcare system and the fact that whatever, you know about it. So like one of the stories I had was just like how I was like treated like, shit by the American healthcare system when I was in like a very sick way and uh, so like we printed that on the back of a t-shirt and that hung in one of the rooms in the gallery Um, so we formulated uh, the stories about abuse through objects or at least in in, in my telling and also in Julia's because we got to one of the one of the really beautiful things that we did was we hung her um, one of her perform I'm gonna is it an ice skating unitard that we hung in one in one of the spaces yeah. where some like really interesting movement happened. Um, and I don't know, it's just it such a beautiful image. Um, and I think, yeah, 
that was very symbolic, probably hopefully for, for Julia in a lot of ways. Uh, but yeah, so we found other ways to to convey or symbolize experiences that happened to us that weren't just through dance. Um, and I was really glad that Julia was the only dancer and performer because she, I don't know, that's she handled that like she did that. Um, she was it. She was the performance in a way. Oh, and there was something I wanted to say. Um, so we were talking about healing, healing um, via dance practices, uh, but also this this performance was a healing via dance performance. So there was meant to be some sort of healing, I guess we could say, or experience or recovery happening by way of interacting with the audience in the way that the performer, in this case, Julia, felt in the moment. So she could decide a lot of things for herself within the score that we had in, in a way to feel power as the performer in this space that was actually shared with audience members. So I know that was a bit of a mess and I didn't give a very clear picture of what the piece actually was. <laughs> so I will pass it on now to Robin and Julia to talk a bit more about. Just hearing you speak about it, I can feel and tell how fresh it still is. Um, and I know, uh, excuse me, I know that was something I wasn't super prepared for. So it was the beginning of an unpacking, not a resolution. And I'm glad you brought up power, Francis, because through this process, we were still dealing with a person who has abused their power with both of us. We were still confronting and had to deal with that person. Um, and I don't think either of us could have imagined that that would be the case and that we still needed that help because we are like women makers who don't have the same accessibility to resources, plain and simple. And we had to look to our men counterparts in many cases to help us realize and give space to this work. Every time that we had a studio that we weren't paying for, uh, it was yeah. given to us by a man who had way more power than we had. Yeah. I think then kind of reapproaching our roles and figuring out our way through that of like actually dealing with our own hierarchy and ourselves and our relationship um, and how we both are in a, in a studio space. I think we were still figuring it out and I'm glad we didn't back away from it. I agree with all of our kind of confrontation of healing that I don't think there is like an answer, but I think to, to be able to create space and continually confront it, that, that I think is, is the practice of it. And then to recognize maybe when it isn't actually doing that and it's doing the reverse, um, I think was definitely a big lesson for all of us during that um, because we're not taught that in a way. Um, it's something where, I know I, that's something I'm trying to discover and still learn about. Um, and even confronting that, like my house is a body that I live in, especially during this time um, of the pandemic. Um, <laughs> I think also learning about different ways that pleasure looks, because I remember there being a lot of times where I felt like uber pleasurable in the thing or exercise we had just done. And that is not what 
maybe Francis saw or felt. So we had to like confront both of our like what is an image of pleasure actually and maybe get over that and or question it um a lot of what came up obviously is um is it okay if I talk about G-A-G-A for a second yeah (laughs) (laughs) as long as we contextualize it properly we got into conversations about what is like kind of a perceived aestheticism of pleasure that we have seen in dance of what pleasure looks like on a dancer's body that has been kind of capitalized upon and exploited in many different ways and facets of our industry and that smears into commercial very easily um, and the sexualization of the female form. So we had to confront pleasure we had to confront pleasure and almost focus more on how we were framing that and how to actually support the pleasure of me in the end and maybe that wasn't what Francis saw or wasn't like what I thought Francis wanted to see but also I'm like yeah I have like colonized ideas of like what what does pleasure look like and I was hung up on that and I probably still am it's like it takes a long time to undo something like that and it takes a practice and mm-hmm. and uh an investment into that practice and um and that's something I think that audiences have to do as well it became an exercise actually of of how do I engage in pleasure and take ownership of that pleasure with people watching watching that and witnessing that in real time and pro- maybe not understanding that, but taking that time within myself of performance, because much like how I'm speaking right now, I tend to just want to move and um, maybe not sit with the uncomfortability of just feeling pleasure in my presence in the room. And uh, that is something that like bleeds into whistles work as well because of dancers using their voice. It's something we're not asked to practice. It's something we're not asked to do most of the time. We are just to agree, be quiet and um, be these silent little lambs of dance. So there was a lot of confrontation that I'm still confronting obviously, but um, So I really would love to revisit this work um, because I think we learned a lot and didn't have as much uh, privilege of time with it um, as I think we all would have liked. And yeah, it's it's, all of its work has has threaded and and stayed with me um, since that that time. I'm going to take a break. Thank you both so much for sharing, of course, like your experience of what it was like, not only to collaborate, but to collaborate together. I'm really interested also um, in how Vanya feels about this, because I know that you're a co-collaborator for a few works currently, Vanya. And I'm really curious, like what you think about um, in terms of this same conversation and like how does power fluctuate and how does it appear when you're when you're making works and also just one other thing is about also just with the audience maybe you don't have to talk about all three or all yeah all three of that but I thought that was really interesting of course what Julia said too is that you know like this work was 
premiered in Frankfurt and a shout out to the very aloof German art crowd that comes and it's not an easy, um, it's not an easy audience. So, you know, there's a lot of power in audiences too. And so it's not just power in collaborators, but power in like, who are you performing in front of? I, I, yeah, I actually, I think I can talk about those three in one, in a way, because as I was listening now to Julia speaking and two thoughts came to me about pleasure and uh, you said pleasure and presenting it. And it's definitely a question for me, the relationship with the audience is always present. And it's been because of the format of ballet that is always to, pre to be presented. It's never to be enjoyed. So I guess that's probably the root uh, a bit of this questioning what pleasure is and also separating it from everything we've been doing. Um, or if we recognize any pleasure, it usually comes from responding to the standards of imposing this comparison, this success. So then I, I feel pleasure when I do the three pirouettes perfectly or when I continue doing it when maybe someone else has stopped or, or you know, like it's like in comparison to something, even if it's within yourself, but it's because there's one person in front of you is demanding that or, or it will be confirming that uh, achievement. Um, and that it can be transferred to so many areas in the life, in our life, personal lives, but um, staying with this idea of performance and arts and dance. And also the idea of when you are in a process and then eventually when you perform, that it becomes a new life for everything, for you, for the work, for because it's also this condition of human beings, which is we when we are looked at is when we exist. So the work also only exists when it's watched. And just another comparison to this is when I was working with this company in New York, Cedar Lake, we didn't have our own theater. So we would have creation time and then we would go to a space where we would be uh, doing the technical uh, uh, work, uh, which means that we will have the, the stage, the, the, the set, the lighting and the costumes and everything. And then we'll be performing it for a video. So we would have it. And then eventually months later, sometimes in the, the next season, we would premiere the work. And this is a crazy amount of time lapse uh, from the creating to the performing it. And it would only matter after we perform it also uh, officially for the work for the company, but also the work itself would only live after it had been performed. And for me, that was always interesting how also for the memory on the body, when we do it as a performance and how it then stays for me, at least it stays forever in my body, in my memory. And when it's yet to be performed, to be premiered, it still becomes in this vague place. Maybe it's because it can always be changed. Maybe, I don't know, but also there are many works that after being premiered, they change. So I, it's very also interesting to me to, to question this whole idea of performance and the moment of presentation. And it, probably there's a lot more, there are a lot more elements to this exchange that affect us. And therefore there's trauma, there's for there's, pleasure and that's why we continue and that's why this is the, the platform we use to express ourselves or to share our, ourselves. And then power and collaboration. The idea of power for me also comes uh, into question in relation to my upbringing and how I was somehow <laughs> brainwashed, I think there's no other word, to, to believe that I don't have any power. So it took me a long, long, long time, meaning until today, still working on it, to understand that I deserve a place. <laughs> I deserve an opinion. Um, 
and I deserve to protect myself, to impose a boundary. Um, and that exercise is so hard just alone to impose that, but to believe you have that right, it's already an intense and long journey. And the idea of collaboration, for me, it's an ideal. Um, and, and at the same time, it's a bit like an utopia, like there's so many that I, that I am fond of, like communism and um, collaboration and the flat, like the lack of hierarchy and the horizontal way of living and working and, and, and existing. But it's really tricky because we are different and we want different things at different moments. And just this hesitation or this kind of, uh, um, what do you call it? Like you're not in sync, this lack of synchronicity can lead to misunderstandings, can lead to projections and to uh, resentment. And then it becomes all very moldy and confusing. And we're not masters at communicating, even if we, some people are better than others at expressing themselves, it still comes from a, a reading something and responding to it. So collaboration, it's uh, for me, it, even though you have an idea that you are collaborating, you might not be collaborating or you might be sacrificing things for yourself because you are collaborating. Yeah, for me, it's uh, this recent work I've, cre I've created or I was part of, I don't even know how to address it. Uh, my 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 um, my take in it, but uh, it was with an, another choreographer that also something that you Julia or Francis had said that your counterparts were male that provided you the place to exist as an artist. In my case, I feel like I've been having many. Uh, well, in this specific project, it was a woman, a white woman, that was talking about or that we were creating the solo where I'm talking about my my background, my racial background, my educational background, my dance background. And um, I couldn't even understand the problem of this relationship until I was actually feeling that I couldn't deal with it anymore. And this place where something happens only when I'm feeling like it's, I cannot anymore, then it, you start thinking, wait, what happened and when that I didn't see and I allowed what could I have done? So then there's also like the guilt of, not guilt, but I mean, at least the weight of, I should have done something, it was up to me, but then how could she do this? How could she go on? And does she even know? And how come she doesn't know? And then there's a lot of questionings um, coming to this, but uh, for me, my counterparts are not only male, the ones that I depend on to exist artistically and also how their relationship is tainted and I have the tendency to feel more comfortable there, even though I judge it and I don't want it anymore. And I think I'm gonna stay there because I feel like it's still like roots and branches to all the things I'm saying that I would like to continue, but I wouldn't even know how to. Thank you so much for that. And I think that it's definitely, it's real. All of these kind of like social weights that just kind of exist in society of whiteness or maleness and how those powers can be used to squash other people or to abuse them or to like get what they want. I think that that's a very real thing. And so I think that that's really, I'm happy that you shared that. But of course, so shitty that you had to go through it. And now it's just how is it that you have to like work through that and like process through it for yourself. But I would be kind of interested just to throw this out to the, to the group because it's like there's a lot of um, discussion now about power, about audiences maybe also about specifically being women making performances about your lived experiences or your identity. I'm really curious how that feels 
especially if there is this container where it could be polluted or taken over or abused. I'm really curious what you all think about that. I don't know if this is totally aligned with where we're going, Robin, but something I I did think about was that this, this moment of um, trauma that I have since then, it has totally pivoted how I navigate dance space and what space I'm entering into, who I'm entering it into with, which 10 years ago I was not doing. I at least was not really taught to question the environment before you get into it and recognize what your expectations of it are. So I know that it has changed my navigation through this field. A very uncooked thought, but it um, it's about how economics plays a role in all of this. Like for example, in It's My House, Robin did an amazing job of raising money for us to do that work and getting that opportunity for us. And I'm so thankful for that. But then we quickly realized that we needed like five times that amount of money in order to put it on in the way that was completely protective and respectful of the people participating in it. Uh, you talk about, uh, you know, 10 years ago, Julia, you wouldn't be working in the way that you're working now. It's like, I know better. I go to schools and I tell them like, you have a right to boundaries. You have a right to this. You have a right to that. Um, you have a right to say no. You have a right to not dance on a concrete floor. You have a right to heating, you know, uh, basic basic stuff. And you have a right to say no and walk away from a job if this and any of this these things aren't being offered to you. And I feel like around it's my house. Every single thing that we offered to Julia, like I I would have said no to. Like and I felt so economically squeezed in that situation that I I felt like I had no choice and. In retrospect, I wonder if I did have a choice, did I? Like if I could have just put a little bit more attention and time into it or a little bit more money, I don't know where I would have found that attention or that time or that money because I was I was frayed thin at that time in my life. Um, and I, I, it just, at the time it didn't seem possible. And I, I'm so ashamed that that's, that's what we did. That's what I did. And uh, yeah, but I just feel like, and financials, financials, will, will, they'll, they'll rule your world and they'll make you change your mind and they'll make you change your principles and your values. And, and I hate that. And I, and I, that's, that's the big thing I want to change. And I don't know how to change it. Um, that's what I wish for the future and, and for everyone making work now and for everyone who wants to make work in the future, I wish for uh, some more financial freedom or freedom from worrying about financials or the economics of all these things. And I wonder uh, if any of that had anything to do with the the process that you're talking about, Vanya, that you just worked on. Because I know you worked on it during a pandemic. And from what I understand is you worked on it separately, meaning you were in Portugal working and the choreographer that you were working with was not in Portugal and you were meeting on Zoom every day and you had a studio. And I'm very curious like how, what that structure was and if you felt pinned down by any aspect of that, particularly the economic one, because you're in the middle of a pandemic, like no one's dancing. And here you are, you have all these opportunities and these jobs. So I'm curious about that, if you want to talk about it. Yeah, yeah, I, I do. I'm actually very glad this, this was a very hard, complicated project. 
Um, and, uh, and I definitely want to talk about it the more I can, not so much about itself to, what is it, to bring out the dirt or to, I don't, it's not about shaming. It was a process uh, where I was given a studio to work. At the beginning, we had it scheduled, but then I realized that the owner of the studio was giving me complete access uh, to it because of the pandemic. It was a studio that had classes, they stopped having classes. So I was basically there alone. So I had all this freedom uh, of time, but the choreographer had also her agenda besides the creation with me. Uh, and basically whenever she would have time to meet, she would always ask, but she would tell me, okay, so next week I have these hours and I have these hours. And then for the next week, I won't be able to work at all. But then the week after, so she'll give me this idea. So then I'll be like, okay, so this week we work in the hours she can. And then I have a full week for myself and then she'll come again. Then next, suddenly the week she was not supposed to be able to work because she, I don't know if she's a control freak, which is also true. Then suddenly she would have time on that week she gave me off. So I basically was with all this freedom of time and studio space, but I was completely dependent on her schedule and her availability. And I, even for, for the process and also for my own private life, because I would make plans carefully because the pandemic was there. So I would make plans with people and some, some of my friends were also, I don't know, working on something about their own. So then we would have a specific time to meet because we haven't met in a long time. I suddenly, at that same time, I had moved to an apartment on my own and then I was in a studio by myself. So I, I really needed to, every once in a while, to meet someone, also to talk about the process I was dealing with and also to just, you know, to exist as a person. So many times I had to cancel those personal plans so yeah, so time was definitely uh, compromised, the, my relationship with it and with the apparent freedom of it. Financially, I was offered uh, uh, what I thought was a fair amount regarding the, in, the standards I've been working under. And then eventually I realized that if it was a collaboration and co-authorship, the numbers could have been different, obviously higher on my side. And this relationship through screen with someone had a lot of limitations besides the physical part that we also worked with, where she would be watching me move, which felt even more like I was in an aquarium with a face and a voice coming from a computer telling me, suggesting things, as much as that was actually helpful because I'd been alone in the studio on, for so long. So it was all very welcome that I would have another voice suggesting something, giving an input. And then also the whole relationship, the entire relationship when you speak with someone through a screen versus when you have someone there. Eventually this whole relationship got tired and uh, went through things. And uh, um, I realized that I was working with someone on the wrong topic. I wasn't, uh, I didn't agree to work on this for healing. I didn't work on this. I didn't agree to work on this for exposure of my personal story, I agreed to an, a format of an interview that would eventually become the material of the text because this was a reposition of work from this choreographer that she had done on herself uh, with a text from John Cage. And we wanted to use something more relevant. Basically this was an, an, a, what was more, more attractive to me with her proposal was to revisit the work she has done and to do it in, with someone else and instead of using the text of a male 
white male that is not even alive anymore and his whole career has been praised enough uh, that we could do something with my personal story. But a little bit uh, like this opportunity we're having right now, the four of us, we are sharing something that we'll be able to, to, to feel comfortable about what we are saying and still have space to say, this is what I want to be, to be told and to be shared. And with her, basically it developed into something that I only realized too late that I was dealing with something that was on the lines of therapy and she's not my therapist. She does not want to be my therapist and she does not want to deal with what something so profound as my own personal experience as a racialized person, daughter of Angolan parents with uh, being a light-skinned black woman with privileges, with navigating through, through life in a certain way, I had to suddenly analyze all of it and make sense of it. And time is ticking. So the more I realized, the less time I had to reshuffle and think this. Meanwhile, our relationship was already tainted because there was tension because of the screen and because of time and so much. So anyway, um, I was able to have someone join the team that was very important to me. There was also a racialized person that has been doing studies on post-colonialism and she was able to see what, what was actually, she, she basically saved what was coming out of me to be at least, she could, she could manage what was going to be said that was important and necessary and it would be safe for me. But this was much later in the process. And this made me, yeah, think I, the work was performed, was pre premiered, and now um, the story is long, there's more details, but it will come out this way now because I don't think there's time to, to share too, so much more, but the choreographer decided that the piece would not go on. And this for me was really uh, offensive because it clearly showed that it was not a collaboration. And uh, at the same time, I have this feeling of, yes, but it, if it wasn't for her, I wouldn't have done this. And then at the same time, if it wasn't for me specifically, this work would not have been what it was, which was also very well received. But besides the approval of the being well received, it, it's more about how people received it and how it actually created an impact uh, and started a conversation and made people think about certain things that were very important. So suddenly this is taken away, opportunity to continue that is taken away. And at the same time, um, I, I, I I don't want to do it anymore. And I think that needed to happen. It happened and now I will continue my life. And this is just an event in my life. It's not what prompted me or is not what would make me anything. This happened and I, I'm learning from it still. I'm healing from it still. And I want to do things like this conversation and talk and prevent others from experiencing this. May them be younger generations or older generations or people that just never question certain important matters, factors in a relationship when you are working with someone. As, uh, I just want to throw out one thing that stayed with me throughout this whole thing. And it's what Julia said, that we need to decentralize dance standards. I don't know if that's exactly what you said, but the, but the fact that you used the word decentralized was, I think, key. And uh, I think that's something that we all need to continue to think about, like how to do that and move forward. I think that's a, a great place to start and finish. On that, something that has been also very important to me is to, as someone that grew up in the marginalized side of cities of society, is that a lot of good work is done there. And there's the concept of what is amateur work versus professional work. And there's a lot of funding that is done, given only for professional work. So 
I guess the decentralization would eventually lead to this observation and, 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 and realization, the existence of other people that are doing amazing work. Thank you so much. I think that that was really illuminating to hear about the situation and from the collaborations that you, um, Julia and Francis have had as well. I think I'll give like just a, a little a recap of what I've kind of heard through the conversations. But before that, I just want to thank you all for such generosity of your vulnerability. These are your real personal stories. This is what you have experienced and what your thoughts are. And I think that that's just so valuable to share that, especially like you said just now, Vanya, with like the newer, younger generations or even people of your same generations. Like, I think it's just a learning process that is kind of going on. But so just in terms of this concept of healing, I think a lot of the stuff that I heard from <laughs> about dance, maybe that was maybe a little bit traumatic and through these stories is the inconsistency of scheduling. Um, another is financial inequality or financial reliance that kind of puts people into these really uncomfortable situations using discipline and jealousy as like a tool to get this product on the stage. And of course, like you just said, Vanya is abusing these kind of therapeutic practices to try to make work, especially if it's in your case, a white woman making work and it's basically just stealing your identity to make her famous. That's just shitty. And so I feel like that's how the trauma can appear in these dance spaces. And just a nod to some of the healing. A lot of that is just the opposites, but of course having safety in these rehearsal spaces. And like you said, like having someone who could understand and give you this sense of both ownership and also just safety. So thank you all so much. I don't know if you have any last thoughts to add. I'll give you a little bit of space. And I also just wanted to thank uh, DIY Dancer for giving us this opportunity, Candace and Courtney and Leo for calling on us to have this conversation. I think it's really great that they gave space for it. We'll close it up now and... Thanks for thanks for listening people whoever you are. That concludes the second chapter of Vulnerable Resilience. Before we go, I'd like to share some essential mental health resources that are available 24/7 for anyone across the country who might be in need of support. We will have links in our episode notes as well as on our website. The crisis text line, text HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741-741 for free crisis counseling. Or call the National Helpline at 1-800-662-4357. Thanks, Courtney, and thanks to all the contributors sharing in this episode. Caitlin Burns, Alejandra Iannone, Robin Dotti, Francis Cheverini, Julia Eishton, and Vanya Dutel Vash. Our sound score was created by Morgan Barbara Williams, and this episode's sound mixing was done by Stephanie Wolf, DIY dancer, co-founder, and producer of the Unsequenced podcast, along with contributing audio editor Justin Epstein from RYBG. Our cover art was created by Tess Jenkins with creative direction and graphic design from Laura Wilson and Celine Kiner. 
Vulnerable Resilience is produced by DIY Dancer with editorial direction by Candace Thompson in partnership with OK Let's Unpack This, a nonprofit dedicated to destigmatizing the conversation around dancer mental health, created in part through Gibney Company's Advocacy Fellowship Program. Special thanks to our sponsor, MSEAM Apparel, for supporting the first-person stories of dancers in every issue of our magazine. You can find their handmade dancewear on Etsy and on Instagram at MSEAM Apparel. In our next chapter, we will uncover the positive changes happening within the dance world. As dancer, writer, Catherine Boland talks with arts organization Erase the Stigma. And we'll wrap up with the transformative conversation between Misa Kino Lucician, Isla Clark, and Maxi Hawkeye Canyon about the experiences trans and non-binary professional dancers face as company members and freelance artists. I'm Courtney Henry. And I'm Leo Zielinska. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. So, 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 so,